Itiwi no mai hoki mai no ki tia hika. Kotane da tuta mawako. Marae rakurakuti nei. Kia ora tata kato. Today we honour the indigenous peoples of this land, the oldest continuing cultures in human history. We reflect on their past mistreatment. We reflect in particular on the mistreatment of those who were stolen generations. This blemished chapter in our national history. The time has now come for the nation to turn a new page. A new page in Australia's history by righting the wrongs of the past and so moving forward with confidence to the future. We apologise for the laws and policies of successive parliaments and governments that have inflicted profound grief, suffering and loss on these our fellow Australians. We apologise especially for the removal of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their families, their communities and their country. For the pain, suffering and hurt of these stolen generations, their descendants and for their families left behind, we say sorry. That was a pretty historic moment for Australia when earlier this year, Australian Labor Prime Minister Kevin Rudd apologised to its Indigenous peoples regarding the policies that purposely removed Aboriginal children from their whānau to, and I quote, breed out the black. We'll be playing excerpts from that speech throughout the program in this Te Ahika dedicated to the Indigenous peoples of Australia. Dr Tamara McKean, President of the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association, otherwise known as ADA, talks us through their reaction as an organisation to the apology and the work they continue to do with their people. While we hear about a project aimed at restoring and reaffirming Indigenous knowledge in the first of a two-part series, that's with Indigenous Australian men Victor Stephenson, Ron Archer, Danny Fisher and Jim Davis before Jim Davis rejoins us to talk about the impact of the apology for him as an Indigenous Australian based here in Wellington. All that and featuring music from Black Bala Music and Yothi Yindi. You know the t-shirt, same different day, which some say can be as easily applied to politics and political parties, same machine, different party, which for Indigenous people just means more of the same. So just how true is that for Australia when a pre-election promise is followed through? Last year, you may recall, I spoke with Romney Mokak, the Chief Executive of the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association, ADA, about the impact of the military-type solutions proposed by John Howard's government as a result of the Children a Sacred report. ADA operates very much in a similar way to the Aotearoa equivalent for Māori doctors, Te Ohurata o Aotearoa, or Te Ora by advocating for improvements in Indigenous health while supporting Indigenous doctors. Our next guest is Dr Tamara McKean, the current president of ADA. I spoke with Tamara a week ago and started by asking just how well a change from a Liberal to Labour government boded for Indigenous Australians. We have seen some quite interesting changes um, with, our, with our change from um, a Howard-led Liberal government to a Rudd-led Labor government, uh, the most significant, uh, two most significant um, things that have happened very early on in the Rudd government is that they have done an official welcome um, to country for the Australian Parliament, the first time ever on the on the first day of Parliament, 
and then on the second day of Parliament opened Parliament by offering an apology to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, specifically an apology to the members, families and descendants of those people that were removed um, from their families as a part of uh, assimilation practices um, and those people have become known as the Stolen generation. And so those two things, an acknowledgement of, of country and a welcome to traditional country and an acknowledgement and an apology for past practices and for the devastation that that has caused have been two major shifts compared to, the, to last, um, our last government. Could you just explain that process? What is an acknowledgement of country? In Australia, um, the sovereignty of our Indigenous peoples, so our Aboriginal and our Torres Strait Islander peoples, has always been contested and, and throughout colonisation was actively denied and it's only been in recent times that things like native title um, and the sovereign rights of Indigenous people have come to the fore into you know, mainstream Indigenous affairs. Um, those have been actively fought against by governments, by both federal and state governments, so where there have been native title claims awarded to peoples, they, those, um, um, those things have been contested in court by, by governments. And so the idea of actually acknowledging um, traditional people's country, traditional ownership and Indigenous people's sovereignty of this land has been a constantly contested and actively denied um, right for Indigenous peoples. And yet one of the things that um, has shown that there is a degree of willing to listen, a degree of appreciation for the sovereign rights of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples has been the acknowledgement that our institutions, both government, education, um, health, a whole range of institutions are actually built on traditional people's lands. So our Canberra, where our parliament is, our capital city Canberra, where our parliament house is, is on traditional Ngunnawal land and at the beginning of the Parliament there was um, a very formal process whereby uh, Ngunnawal people welcomed um, the parliamentarians and the Parliament to their, to their land and you know, acknowledged that the meetings were taking place on, on traditional land and that was being done with their blessing. Very different to Māori where many of these things are actually already in protocol and process a lot of the things that um, happen in terms of how Māori is respected um, in, in governance are things that haven't happened here in Australia and things that we are, have really fought for and have only just started to see shifts in that now. We're all here as Australians, but there are first Australians here and we need to acknowledge that. And I think that that is the big key here um, and I think that is the tremendous... Um, leadership that Prime Minister Rudd has shown has been about really redressing things on a societal level um, and really redressing the way Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are viewed in terms of their value to current Australian society um, as well as their, um, their rights as Indigenous peoples. And I think that the, the change um, from the last 11 years under, under a particularly um, hostile government to a government that is at least willing to be open and at least willing to listen 
has brought a lot of hope to to not just Aboriginal people but a lot of um, non-Aboriginal people working to create change in health education and, and other affairs for, for our people. So working on the health front line, you've seen the first-hand effects of a lot of those assimilation policies. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, the apology when it was delivered was... I mean, I get goosebumps thinking about it now. It was so powerful. It was um, very well meant. There was nothing... Um, a political about it. It was a genuine response from a human being to other human beings about devastating things that had happened. And as a daughter of a, a woman who was removed from, from her family and my husband, a son who was removed from, from his family, um, our, our own little child, our own little boy, to be present, although probably not intellectually aware because he's still only a little fella um, to be present at such a point in time was was huge um, and for there to be to be that change I don't think um, the effects of being dispossessed of being marginalized of being uh, of that cultural genocide where you're denied access to your land your country your people your language your customs your traditions all of those sorts of things when it comes to health have only really ever been on the periphery in terms of understanding the determinants of Indigenous health. And a lot of the things around health get caught up in um, things about our physical nature, about being overweight or about having high blood pressure, um, about the social determinants in a narrow sense. So. Um, things like poverty and not having adequate housing or low levels of education, low levels of employment. But we've really struggled with going beyond that into the root causes of those things, into really understanding how dispossession and racism make a situation whereby people find it um, difficult to have good health and have good well-being. And more than that, how do people have a strong identity about who they are as Aboriginal people and feel proud and feel good about their heritage when it is constantly undermined and undervalued in the wider society? And we, we are seeing a lot of the effects of that in terms of the social and emotional well-being of our people. And I'm not just talking about mental illness, although that's a big part of it, but just the social and emotional well-being aspects and the, the, the way that people are able to parent, are able to function well in family, are able to have um, that strength and that resilience and that pride as strong Aboriginal people, as strong Torres Strait Islander people. So the apology took place just over a month ago. So tell me about some of the strategies your organisation has put in place to address the long-term effects of those policies. Well, one of the things that we started doing last year under a different government was in relation to the Northern Territory intervention. Um, and that was um, a, an intervention uh, brought about um, from the release of a report called The Little Children Are Sacred. And this was a report. It wasn't the first report um, that 
outlined the issues of um, child safety and child abuse in communities in the Northern Territory, particularly in remote communities in the Northern Territory. And at the government at the time, the um, Howard Liberal government, um, response to that was to launch an intervention whereby it announced 11 components of this intervention, um, ranging everything from compulsory child health checks for sexual abuse to the removal of um, uh, permit systems that controlled um, people coming onto Aboriginal land, to um, alcohol prohibition strategies, to child um, or to pornographic prohibition strategies, and a whole range of, of other things um, that was in response to this report. Now, interestingly, they needed to pass legislation to do this, and part of that legislation um, meant that there was a suspension of the Racial Discrimination Act. So, in order to carry out these interventions, um, which were um, racially orientated, the Racial Discrimination Act was suspended in Australia for this particular piece of work. There are special measures within the Racial Discrimination Act that um, can be applied uh, to different um, to different acts of parliament, to different legislation, um, whereby the Racial Discrimination Act doesn't need to be um, considered or doesn't need to be held to. But the Human Rights and Equal Opportunity Commission did a very good and very comprehensive review of the legislation that supported the Northern Territory intervention and the um, the legislation purported to fall under the category of these special measures, but in actual fact, according to the Human Rights Equal Opportunity Commission, it did not meet those special measures criteria. Right. Nonetheless, the legislation was passed and the things that, that we're interested in doing as AIDA is looking at the health impact of that whole process on the health of our people not just on terms of the interventions that, that were done and carried out in various communities, particularly in terms of the child health checks, which were then not made compulsory um, after much lobbying and advocating, but also looking at how this whole raft of legislation with its racially determined um, kind of background, what is that doing to our people's health? And we're undertaking a health impact assessment as a study to see what that's meant for community people on the ground in terms of how they feel, what their perspectives are, whether they think the interventions made a change for good or for bad. And what we're really looking at is refining policy, working with government to, to make sure that policy, when it is introduced, is done in such a way that the negative ramifications of it are really minimised. What's the word on country? What are their views around the apology? Most people have been um, quite overwhelmed, particularly members of the stolen generation who, and, and their direct descendants who thought that they would never live to see this day because we had lived through the last 11 years of a very hostile government. Um, it has really opened a door for uh, potential to really redress issues. One of the important things that was announced as part of the apology by Prime Minister Rudd was a bipartisan policy commission that would tackle issues of housing for Indigenous communities, particularly remote Indigenous communities. So really starting to try and cut across um, party lines and jurisdictional lines, stop using 
you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health as a political football and just get on with change. It's been very early on in the piece yet, but at least there has been some movement that suggests that there is the real potential for change. And people on the ground are feeling that. When you talk to, like when I talk to my mum, when I talk to her brothers and sisters and I talk to other family members, people feel at long last that there's a, an acknowledgement for the awful, awful things that happened to them. And that makes them as individuals feel hopeful for the future. And communities, I think, as a whole, are feeling hopeful for the, for the future. And certainly from our perspective within an organisation, we're actually feeling hopeful for the future, not just in terms of the members that we represent in terms of the Indigenous doctors and Indigenous medical students and other people working to change Indigenous health, um, but in terms of just shifting thinking, shifting where people are, are at um, when they think about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people into a more positive space. And the political will and political leadership that we've really needed, I think, has actually come through in our current Prime Minister. Now, Tamara, would you, um, would you like to talk about the personal effects? I, I'm more than happy to talk about myself and my mum. Okay. Um, you know, the <laughs> she was um, removed from her family when she was about five years old and um, she had a horrendous experience as a child um, and it's a testament to her strength um, as an individual um, and the strength of our ancestors that she survived horrendous ordeals um, and that not only that she actually spawned three um, children who are uh, successful and happy children um, my husband's father and my mother were in the same children's home as removed children and we didn't know that um, until we started making some of the connections on my husband's side about three years ago and so the the close to home aspects of these these things were, were huge um, my husband and I went back to that place we wanted to see this place that had taken so much from from our parents um, and we we needed needed to see this place for ourselves and we went there um, and it is still a children's home it's still a functioning children's home and it is a place that it, it, it is full of, um, of just awful memories for people and I wonder how it can actually be a healing place um, having been such a place of destruction. And so seeing that place and feeling the energies of that place was, was a um, very difficult thing for, for my husband and I but something that we, we really felt that we wanted to do. And in terms of what that means for our kids, um, you know, they will know who they are from, from day dot. My son has an Aboriginal name. He's, we have reclaimed that for him. And he will know from the moment that, you know, he was, he was born who he is. And he won't have to search and he won't have to, 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 to wonder um, and he won't have to find out the painful stories. He'll probably have to deal with his own reaction 
to that history that he's a part of, but that'll be as a supported, you know, in a fully supported way, rather than trying to deal with it um, in terms of, of of having no basis to understand what had happened, why it happened, and more importantly, why why did it happen to my mum? Why did these awful things happen to her? What was so bad about her? You know, absolutely nothing. It was just the government um, and the institutions of the day enacting policies um, that were just wrong and that abused people's human rights. And, you know, moving forward from that is the opportunity that's been presented to us now um, as, as a nation, not just for Aboriginal people, but as an entire nation to, t to come to grips with this history and to move forward and to do it in a way that is about healing and not about blame or fault. Dr Tamara McKean, and I'm the current president of the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association and I'm working as a senior research fellow with the Centre for Aboriginal Medical and Dental Health within the University of WA. I'm a descendant of the Wallian people um, and that is a part of the Northern Goldfields region of Western Australia, so m mostly desert people. Um, but my husband is Noongar, and which is more coastal people, and our child has that... In case you're family. interested, here's some web addresses. ADA, A-I-D-A, .org.au for the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association and Te Ora, T-E-O-R-A, .maori.nz for the Māori Medical Practitioners Association, Te Ohurata o Aotearoa. There comes a time in the history of nations when their peoples must become fully reconciled to their past if they are to go forward with confidence to embrace their future. Our nation, Australia, has reached such a time and that is why the Parliament is today here assembled, to deal with this unfinished business of the nation, to remove a great stain from the nation's soul, and in a true spirit of reconciliation, to open a new chapter in the history of this great land, Australia. So how is it for an Indigenous person living in the land of another when something major goes down? A couple of weeks ago, I spoke with Jim Davis, a Wellington-based Indigenous Australian. My name is uh, Jim Davis. Um, I'm a descendant of the Zaro family in the Torres Strait uh, from Murray Island. Um, I've got family connections all up and down Cape York Peninsula. Look, I think it was a watershed day, really. Um, I know that a lot of people um, had suffered directly and, and it's come down through the generations um, at the hands of past practices, like the removalist policies and the protectorate policies and... And, and I think that uh, an apology from um, the right government on behalf of the Australian Parliament is, um, is long overdue, you know. And um, I, I just hope that, that this is the start of a, of a new era, uh, like a new day, and that there is now a, uh, a desire within the Australian Parliament to walk hand in hand with Indigenous Australia because I think there's a lot that we can learn from each other, not just looking at the way that initiatives rolled out in the past, uh, being too uh, bureaucratic, uh, too Canberra-focused, um, and actually looking at initiatives that empower grassroots uh, decision-making processes and recognising the roles of, um, of traditional governance structures uh, in bringing about solutions and, and improving uh, the well-being of, uh, of our elders, our, our younger generations, our, our 30s to 40s, and, and more, most importantly, our, our children. 
Because I guess there's been a degree of cynicism from some Indigenous Australian peoples, Jim. Yeah, um, I think what we've seen is, uh, is in the past, uh, examples of, um, of uh, reconciliation, uh, especially um, at the uh, 2000, in 2000, I think it was, um, the, the crossing of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, uh, when, when uh, a lot of people, minus the Prime Minister, uh, made the effort to, to walk across uh, Sydney Harbour Bridge in hand-in-hand in recognition of reconciliation. Um, but I think if, if we take that as an example of intent uh, from our fellow Australians, that necessarily hadn't been reflected in, in the policies and practices and of, of, uh, of the then Howard government. So, I mean, I guess what uh, Kevin Rudd did on the 13th of February um, in saying the apology to the stolen generation is... Uh, is, is a the cynicism of the past is still warranted. I think we should tread with, uh, with caution. But uh, I think now what we have is, a, is a, hopefully a genuine desire uh, from a new government um, to work with Indigenous people and to bring about the changes that are needed and long overdue. Your family, were you touched by the results of these policies? Yeah, I think, I think uh, everybody sort of uh, absorbed gravity of, uh, of the apology in their, in their own way. I mean, my, my two-year-old son went out with his granddad and did some paintings on Apology Day, and uh, they, they take pride of place, place in our house. Um, I watched the, uh, the, the media coverage, um, and, and I guess in watching it, I sort of thought about... Um, oh, I thought about a lot of the people that had uh, suffered at the hands of um, these practices, and I, you know, I sort of think and, and you know... Um, I think of what it would have felt, how it would have felt to mothers to have their children ripped out of their arms and taken, and and to have seen them through barbed wire fences, or <clears throat> excuse me, or to to um, to have uh, a society that that had, had its young people just absolutely ripped out of it. I mean, it would have felt absolutely guttering. Um, and I and I sort of think that you know um, the apology is well accepted by the descendants of those people, but uh, nothing can replace the, uh, the, the sentiments and feelings and the pain and the hurt and the sufferings that, that those people, um, you know, that um, those old people that have, that have gone with broken hearts, um, or how they would have felt, you know. Um, I sort of think about uh, my, own, my own family, um, my, 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 my father's side, um, my father's mother, owned um, cattle property up in Cape York and um, they came across the, uh, a, a young, young man, a young boy actually, baby, that had been stuffed into a, into a gum tree and um, they took that young baby and they raised him on the property and, and uh, because of the sounds that he made, all, that carried all through the, the, the scrublands around Laura, I mean, his name was Echo, <laughs> you know, and that was a white family bringing up you know, uh, raising an Aboriginal child, you know, and he was a Ukula man. Um, but in some ways, too, I mean, I, I think that those old people knew that that baby would, was safe where he was, you know, and that he was still on country and that he was, you know, he, he was still able to be connected and contacted without, you know, having too much uh, interference from, you know, from, from the... Um, 
some constabularies and stuff, you know. Mm. Um, and them old people knew where that uh, where that fellow was, where old Echo was, because um, when he came of age, they they took him away for initiation. So had they placed him in the gum tree to be picked up by the White family for his own safety? Oh, be, be, because what the what the what the police would do was that they'd um, they'd raid a camp. And mothers carrying children or carrying babies, um, I mean, it was easier for them um, to run without the babies, basically. Mm. So what they did was that they would find hollows or places to put the babies and then come back to them later. But uh, something must have happened along the way, you know, and the mother couldn't return, the family couldn't return. And... Um, my great-grandfather was coming back from the Laura Township and he heard this baby crying in the, um, in the bush and it took him a while to try and find where the baby was but by the time he found the baby, it was covered in green ants and, you know, it mm. needed, needed attention so he, he took it back to, um, back to the homestead, you know. And, um, yeah, they, he stayed there, basically. Yeah, um, and I think... It served. It served sort of. It, it served the the purposes of making sure that the baby was safe, um, and the family, um, Ukula family, knew where Echo was, so they knew he was safe. You know. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, and then I also thought about old um, Tommy George and George Musgrave. You know, they were how they evaded the removalist policy by being being hidden in mailbags. You know, as young kids. You know, and how they managed to stay on country and how they grew up with close connections to family. Um, and But Cape York has been... Um, is one of those areas that what comes out of the mouths of, of bureaucrats and politicians in Canberra is interpreted differently in different areas. And Cape York is so far away from, um, you know, the politicians that what happens in areas like Cape, because it is so remote, um, it, it has been sort of very, very brutal. Cape York history is very, very brutal. Um, the, the massacres that went on, um, you know, young girls being paraded down the main streets of Cooktown um, by, you know, pastoralists saying how they're going to take her and break her in, you know, that sort of stuff. I mean, how, how do you, how do you, how does one reconcile that type of history, you know? Um, yeah, so, I mean, I, I think the apology sort of evoked... Many emotions in, in people, you know, um, a genuine desire to get on and try and improve the, the, our, our standings as it is now because um, we're at rock bottom. But we have so much to offer to the broader Australian, you know, um, broader Australian people. We have so much to offer to the environment. We have so much to offer in terms of providing different perspectives on, on caring for country, you know. That um, we, we've we've got to we, we've got to take this apology as as a good as good intentions to do business differently. You're the father of Māori children, and you were talking earlier about how your boy um, went out and painted a picture on Apology Day. How do you reconcile their two <clears throat> experiences as children of a Māori woman? and an Indigenous Australian man? Mm. Well, I, I think that they've been, they've been blessed. Um, that, that the fact that they're able to sort of walk uh, a number of cultures 
um, the Indigenous Australian culture, the Māori culture, and, you know, the Miglu or Pākehā culture, um, I, I think means that we are in a, a, we are in a better position today to, to understand what is happening within each culture and to utilise the, the good bits of each of those cultures to improve our standing overall as people, because what we need is we need societies that are tolerant, resilient. We need societies that are embracing of differences. Um, we need societies that are prepared to walk hand in hand and prepared to to, to walk the talk. You know, that's that's what we need. Um, we need to be able to sit down together and, and have the discussions, and to come out with with um, with ways of moving forward together, you know? I mean, it's not about welfare anymore. I mean, we're not going to be passive recipients of government policies, you know? And I think while the apology uh, is good-intentioned, I mean, I think there needs to be significant um, investments around, um, you know, our, our recognising the role of elders in, in looking after country and looking after natural resources. There needs to be investments around economic development so that our, our 30 to 40-year-olds and 20-year-olds are able to go out and find long-term employment and to make a buck, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the inte- there, was, there was talk about a $500 million compensation package as part of a suite of investments, you know, um, that, that had obviously been taken out of the apology because Rudd needed to get the apology through Parliament, and he needed to get the factional support within Labor and also the bipartisan support with the Liberals. So he couldn't talk about any compensation funds or any uh, any significant investments other than education and health, which, yep, we need those, but we also need uh, investments around economic development, uh, social enterprise development, and we also need to recognise the role of our elders as, as the, the carriers of you know, uh, significant knowledge um, in, in looking after and caring for, you know, uh, a country that that I'm very passionate about, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, I mean, I hope that what, 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 our, what our children invest is is the, 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 uh, an understanding of what has happened in the past to both, both cultures, to, to Māori and to the cultures of Indigenous Australia, and that they use those as as motives um, to move forward and to never to never forget where we've come from, but we pray to our gods that we never have to live those again. You know, so that's what I hope our children learn out of this. Jim Davis of the Zara family, Torres Strait. Some have asked, why apologise? Let me begin to answer by telling the Parliament just a little of one person's story. An elegant, eloquent and wonderful woman in her 80s, full of life, full of funny stories, despite what has happened in her life's journey. A woman who has travelled a long way to be with us today. A member of the Stolen Generation who shared some of her story with me when I called round to see her just a few days ago. Nana Nungalo Fijo, as she prefers to be called, was born in the late 1920s. She remembers her earliest childhood days, living with her family and her community in a bush camp just outside Tennant Creek. 
She remembers the love and the warmth and the kinship of those days long ago, including traditional dancing around the campfire at night. She loved the dancing. She remembers once getting into strife when, as a four-year-old girl, she insisted on dancing with the male tribal elders, rather than just sitting and watching the men, as the girls were supposed to do. But then, sometime around 1932, when she was about four, she remembers the coming of the welfare men. Her family had feared that day and had dug holes in the creek bank where the children could run and hide. What they hadn't expected was that the white welfare men didn't come alone. They brought a truck, they brought two white men and an Aboriginal stockman on horseback, cracking his stock whip. The kids were found, they ran for their mothers screaming, but they couldn't get away. They were herded and piled onto the back of the truck. Tears flowing, her mum tried clinging to the sides of the truck as her children were taken away to the bungalow in Alice, all in the name of protection. A few years later, government policy changed. Now the children would be handed over to the missions to be cared for by the churches. But which church would care for them? The kids were simply told to line up in three lines. Nanafijo and her sisters stood in the middle line, her older brother and cousin on her left. Those on the left were told that they had become Catholics. Those in the middle, Methodists, and those on the right, Church of England. That's how the complex questions of post-Reformation theology were resolved in the Australian outback in the 1930s. It was as crude as that. Like Ada, the Traditional Knowledge Revival Project owes its inception and life to committed individuals recognising a need to preserve traditional Indigenous knowledge with the aim of benefiting community well-being for all present and the future generations. That's from their website. I interviewed the following guests last December in our Wellington studio when they were visiting Aotearoa. I'm Victor Stephenson, the project leader for the Traditional Knowledge Revival Pathways Project, um, and I am in Cairns, North Queensland. I'm Daniel Fisher. I'm a project officer for TKRP for the uh, Guga Yalanji area. That's about an hour's drive north of Cairns. I'm Ron Archer, I'm a Jungan elder, and my country is, it puts you back towards Keynes and look northwest for about 200 kilometres, and that's where you'll find our people in that area. Hello, um, my name's Jim Davis, I'm a descendant of the Zaro family from Murray Island. Um, I'm now living in Wellington, and um, I've spent a bit of time in my past lives with um, these three fellows here, so thank you. So tell me about the Traditional Knowledge Revival Pathways Project. Um, the Traditional Knowledge Revival Pathways Project was a project that um, we started um, back in the year 2000. It was um, pioneered by two Kuka Taipan elders um, within Cape York. Um, basically, the need to record their, their knowledge before it was lost. You know, young children weren't picking up the knowledge um, and also um, the knowledge wasn't present within community and land management, environmental management. So the elders were concerned and they basically got a hold of me and, and said, look, we need to record this knowledge and we found the need to just start recording that knowledge. And the best way to do that was through video cameras because that was the closest way to the traditional transfer 
of actually seeing the elders and for the elders saying for themselves what the knowledge system is and or, you know in particular trees or plants or um, story places or whatever like that you know so why is it people went put generate the younger generation we went picking up on the knowledge well basically uh, you know society is polluted at the moment with a lot of the commercial world um, a lot of the music that you see on TV and mainstream um, is all you know music that really comes from you know United States the messages on there don't have any links to cultural connections at all or to land or country um, so we have a lot of problems, and as well as within the communities, we do have a lot of problems that we've been going through with alcohol and a range of things, as well as um, our education system um, within our communities and within the country doesn't reflect at all um, the traditional knowledge systems of our elders on country. So um, you know, that's why we started to do the project, so that we can start to look at um, you know, developing a system based from traditional knowledge that can work um, that encompass everything because what we're really aiming at here is for our children. So is that because most um, Indigenous Australians are living rurally? A lot of them uh, we find that they're going back on country because their parents were removed, grandparents were removed from country, moved on to someone else's country so all that knowledge that they possessed went with them so now you've got a a group of younger people coming back on country and they're wanting to know, they want to go back and look at the cultural issues that they face. And uh, when Victor, when I first saw this project happening, I said, I, I want this project on my country. So I spoke to my elders and they said, yeah, look, let's start doing it. So I went out and I asked these guys for advice on equipment that we'd use out. So I've got all my own equipment, our people have got there, so I can go out whenever I'm available with my elder and, and start to record knowledge. And that knowledge is not only about story places, cultural issue, but it's it's about it's about their connection to country. They talk about where they come from. You know, that their spirituality, the very essence of Aboriginality is connected connected to country. So, you know, I start to record uh, my eldest brother talking about bush medicine and how uh, they used to practice that. So all that knowledge is being recorded at the moment. To be used by future generations. Yeah, eh? it's it's there. I, I said to my brother, look, you either got to start recording it on a tape or you start this project off. Because I said, you drop dead tomorrow and, 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 and we lose gone. that. Yeah, we we lose it. Because mm, we experience the same thing. Yeah. Um, and I'm guessing your communities are the same as ours. Our our people die young, so our elders are usually in their sixties. Yeah. It's very unusual to find Māori who have aged past seventy up to the eighty. It's you know like back home, uh, Granite Ron talks about, like where we live. There's probably about. 15, 20 people max where we live. Uh, we have no electricity, just a solar panel or just a fire that goes around. Um, we, you know, just to live, just a roof over our heads and a post that's in the ground, you know, and that's that's home for us. And it's a lifestyle, our grandparents that lived in that 
kind of situation. And it gives us the empowerment of your own country. You're there. Because my grandfather, who's still alive today, is 92. And my grandmother, who's uh, is 84 today, and two of the uh, last living elders in their generation. So when I hear their stories and knowing and picking up what was country like when they were kids, it's very disheartening just to hear there used to be like 500 Aboriginal people that was living up in where I'm stopping there. And because of all the miners that went there and the main source of water they had was next to a little creek, was beds. And because of all the mining, because of gold, tin, our people was dying of thirst. They're trying to move camp, and every time they try to move camp, they either get done for because they're going into private property or because of, you know, stealing or other stuff like that. So our people now, our granddad and granny saw it during them times and telling me stories when their mum and dad were still alive till during that time. In some of the areas, in in our culture, it's hard to talk about people who have passed on. And um, sometimes the old people don't want to talk about that particular person. And uh, so when they pass on, a lot of that knowledge goes with them. And then as young people, we come along and then we start to say, well, maybe that old fellow should have recorded that message somewhere, mm -hmm. that story. So when we saw this opportunity to run this project, especially on our country, I, my brother got really excited, but he, he made it really difficult for me. He would, he'd be standing in front of the camera and he'd say, bring the camera here, you see this plant here? And then, it, then when he finished telling the story, he said, now over here... <laughs> And we were just bouncing all over the place. And and I found that he didn't tell the story properly. <laughs> so I said, you've got to slow up, tell the story properly so that we can record it the way you tell that story. So even though it was important, we also had fun with it, you know, because this is a... You can see young people, they, they want to see how how we bring about using traditional knowledge and this new technology come together. And when you see it, the old people talk about it, but when they see it on a video or something, they say, yeah, that's me there, that's me there. So, it, you know, it, it's, it's really good to bring the young and the old people together, and the young people usually handle the technology better than the older ones. But when the older ones see, see, I know how to talk on that thing. Good though, eh? Because the younger ones would be picking it all up anyway, yeah. just by holding the camera or the yes. recording equipment. And it gives yeah. it gives that young person the sense of ownership and responsibility, because he's the only one who can run that machine. See, so the old fellow they feel proud that their granny's standing behind that camera, and they making a story, you know, and he learning at the same time. So with that as well, you know, that's where the TKP methodology um, was developed. And with the communities involved, um, we get communities to mentor communities. And the way that this project spreads is through that 
um, yeah, through a community that's already doing work, like Danny here from Cook Allergies is one of our really good trainers now that's, you know, been going to other communities and helping them out get it started, just like we're doing here now in New Zealand. And that methodology is, is really the key. And for TKP as a core team, the idea is to, you know, the hardest um, part is to keep the funding for so that we've got the core team running to support the communities in um, engaging in the methodology and helping them out so that um, when they're out there on country and recording, they're getting the best um, um, process possible that's grassroots developed um, and using the most advanced technology. And how is it funded? Um, the funding in the past has come from uh, a number of just small grants. Um, the problem back home in Australia is that you know a lot of the funding is just drip-fed funding. We get funded for one year and then we miss out the next year and regardless of how successful or how great the project may, may seem or well-known it may be around the country, um, it still only gets drip-fed funding. And a lot of agencies really um, take um, Are these non-governmental agencies? Yeah, or, governmental agencies, also philanthropic off. agencies even. Um, there really isn't um, the big shoulder getting behind the process like it should. Um, or, um, you know, the project's really been running off, you know, heart and a lot of the um, the outcomes of the project have been developed on very little funds. Um, but, you know, most agencies are drawing from the project and restructuring their own agendas rather than um, people working together and getting behind this. Because what we're actually doing here is we're putting Indigenous knowledge into solution of environment. We're putting in our knowledge for solution for community. And, um, you know, really, our traditional knowledge is a system that has worked for thousands of years in keeping people in balance with the land and in balance with each other. And really is an um, important baseline that we need to be working from, from contemporary outcomes. And the um, Western society and broader communities really don't understand that. So um, getting and showing examples of where that is a real benefit for everyone's future, including non-Indigenous as well as Indigenous, um, is really the key um, for everyone to realise that this is a process um, for everyone, um, everyone's okay. benefit. So if I could just take it back to, the, to an example I'd, I'll understand. Um, in traditional Māori society, uh, there were certain experts called tohunga, right? And they, would, at time, they were experts in whatever their field of knowledge were. And because they lived in a village lifestyle from the time a baby was born or even from before when the parents were together and just through their lineage they would identify whether that baby would be um, nurtured in a certain um, discipline whether it would be karakia so so um, blessings or whether it would be warfare now I'm assuming that because the need of this project has come about because of the breaking down of that village lifestyle. And so for Māori, um, as our lifestyle, as villages eroded, you know, through colonisation mm. and through other things, Tōhuna got to the stage where as the village is young people were being born, they were seeing that there was no one that they could pass the knowledge on to. So they were making a choice not mm. to pass it on. So with this project, it seems that that specific decision-making isn't there. I mean, is that right? Yeah, well, the communities um, have their own decisions, and the whole the purpose of the project 
is for communities to drive their own knowledge and, and, and caretake their own knowledge systems as okay. well as their land. And the project can escalate into different, many levels. You could either start by recording knowledge and filling in a database that we've developed with the elders on country, or you could simply just um, um, work with the methodology in implementing land management strategies back on country. Um, it's all um, a whole range of possibilities and where this methodology helps out, um, whether you want to put something into the school. Um, so if people didn't want to record their knowledge, that's fine. But maybe they wanted help to implement their traditional management back to their story places to get their water clean again. And there are different levels where people can fit in to the methodology. So it's okay. not just about, you know, the knowledge system itself and the knowledge itself. And if people are concerned about their knowledge and their own um, knowledge in their own area, then um, it's up to them how they would like to manage that. But the idea for the TKRP is to provide as much help as possible. Victor Stephenson there with Ron Archer and Danny Fisher. They're back with us next week alongside Jim Davis where we talk more about our similarities and unsurprisingly, given our shared colonial past, the challenges in wanting to restore, revive and maintain traditional practices. And their web address is tkrp.com.au Some of these stories are graphically told in Bringing Them Home, the report commissioned in 1995 by Prime Minister Keating and received in 1997 by Prime Minister Howard. There is something terribly primal about these first-hand accounts. The pain is searing. It screams from the pages. The hurt, the humiliation, the degradation and the sheer brutality of the act of physically separating a mother from her children is a deep assault on our senses and on our most elemental humanity. These stories cry out to be heard. They cry out for an apology. Instead, from the nation's parliament, there has been a stony and stubborn and deafening silence for more than a decade. A view that somehow we, the parliament, should suspend our most basic instincts of what is right and what is wrong. A view that instead we should look for any pretext to push this great wrong to one side to leave it languishing with the historians, the academics and the cultural warriors as if the stolen generations are little more than an interesting sociological phenomenon. But the stolen generations are not intellectual curiosities. They are human beings. Human beings who have been damaged deeply by the decisions of parliaments and governments. Ki te whānau kei konei, ki Jason McClelland, te kairā wikiwiki mehini, ki ora. Ki nā tangata, kei roto i te whare puka puka, ko Emma Rato, ko Yvonne, ko Yumi, ko Anne, ki ora. Ki a koe mākita, ngā mihi. Ko marae raka aku tēnei. O tāne rau tūta tēnei. He, he mihi atu, atu ki a tātou katoa, katoa. e te wiki, mauri ora. <laughs>